Now it's time for Tracy Martin from the New Zealand First Party. This week I had my weekly chat with New Zealand First Minister Tracy Martin. We talked about the new $75.8 million funding announcement for counselling in schools, which includes the first allocation for primary school counselling in New Zealand's history. There was also an announcement from the Minister last night about $160 million in funding for the ongoing resourcing scheme, or OARS, which provides specialist teacher aid to support students with higher learning needs. Lastly, we spoke about the recent passing of an amendment to the Crimes Act to do with female genital mutilation. This is particularly historic as it marks the first time a bill has been put forward by a female member of all four major parties, meaning it bypassed the need for any unnecessary debate. We began by talking, however, about the funding for counselling in schools. Now, counsellors have been in secondary schools for quite some time, so why is it important that this is extended to primary schools as well? Because um, over the years, over the last, well, I don't know, a couple of decades actually, for whatever reason, and nobody's really putting their finger on it at this stage, what we have seen is anxiety and depression among younger and younger of our children. So um, one of the, and, and this, I guess this piece of work came out of my time on PTAs and boards of trustees when my children were um, at primary school. And I know as a board of trustees member that we would have children, for example, that may have... Um, that had had trauma in their life, who could, who needed the services of a counsellor, but we were unable to access them because of their age. So um, this is actually an opportunity to counter that and recognise what is the reality for many of the children in our schools. And so why has this taken so long? Is it that kids are only now needing counselling or that we are only now beginning to realise it? Or are there some pressures as well that school kids are facing today that are unique to the times? Well, it, um, one, of the situ- one of the things that has been happening, is, again, over about the last decade or so, is that what we are seeing, um, what we have been seeing previously in our secondary school students, we are now seeing more of in our primary school students. So again, that's anxiety, that's depression, that's violence, um, that's the inability to self-manage. So we're seeing more of that. Um, ultimately a piece of research needs to be done as to say why are we seeing more of that? Why are our children more stressed, more anxious at much earlier ages? What, is, what has changed over the last decade or two decades that has created this, um, this phenomenon? But while, we, while we're waiting for that piece of research, um, we need to make sure that we are stepping in and providing an opportunity for our children to stay well. So why now? I guess maybe because right now there's a minister that is in place that actually has a passion for this and fought to get the funding. So you're saying, yeah, we don't know exactly what the causes of those stresses are, but if they are a result of the stresses of school and of the schooling system, perhaps does that require us to rethink the way that we teach? Well, that's been raised, I suppose, from a secondary level with regard to NCEA. So that conversation has taken place, or is taking place, um, around how is NCEA um, put added stresses or um, because of the continual sort of... um, the continual gaining of units through the year. That was quite a live part of the conversation about changes to NCEA that Minister Hipkins is working on. With regard to our primary school students, what is more likely and what I would love to see a piece of research on is how does the constant interruption of life in an internet-rich environment create that anxiety for our children? How, how has the pace of life that we have created 
for our families influenced um, the sense of security for our children. Uh, the other thing that I know from my experience is that many children were anxious to come to school not because it was school they were worried about, but it was wor they were worried about what was going to happen if they left home. So it was things that were happening inside of their home um, that if they stayed there, there was one of their parents who was protected because the other parent wouldn't do certain things as long as they were in the house. So it's not a simple, this is the answer, but it certainly is something that we need to be spending a lot more time having a look at. Mm, and that does kind of tie into, too, that for many, counselling isn't a cultural norm, you know, to open up and tell a stranger all those um, intimate details about your life. So how do we make those services more approachable and culturally appropriate, especially for children? Well, and that is part of what will be the procurement process that the Ministry of Education will have to go through. So you're right, one size doesn't fit all. Um, there is a type of European or parkour counselling that takes place, but also there needs to be a culturally appropriate um, mechanism for our Māori and our Pacifica students and uh, students of other ethnic backgrounds to feel safe to go and talk to someone. Every culture has a way of um, supporting has historically had a way of supporting people to feel safe. How do we tap into what has been the cultural norms there and make sure that we support that? And in terms of secondary school students, the New Zealand Association of Counsellors says they're still waiting on the government to implement the recommended ratio of one counsellor to 400 secondary school students. Are there any plans on that? Well, not right now. I've just made an announcement on this. So, um, you know, so that's $75 million over four years, and it is a lift, and I made sure that the percentage of this um, announcement that affects secondary schools, I wanted to make sure that it was a practical um, application. So the um, for an in-school counsellor, those of uh, over a certain number of students will, at a very minimum, receive another actual human being for two days a week on top of their current counselling services. Um, for those secondary schools and area schools below that, they will be part of the larger piece, the secondary piece of the 44 million out of that 75, that give them access to counsellors in their area. Um, I understand what the um, Association of Counsellors said. They, they also want us to remove the requirement for counsellors inside of secondary schools to be teachers. Um, so I understand that that is a piece of work that needs to take place going forward. But one of the things that I know from students is that while um, there is a train of thought among adults that you must have counsellors inside secondary schools so that they are readily accessible to students, and I don't dismiss that, I also know from students that they would sometimes not want to go to the school counsellor, that they have concerns about who sees them go and who knows their business. So having access to external counsellors as well as, in my mind, is best of both worlds. And so then talking to another education funding announcement, which was made just last night, about the $160 million into the ongoing resourcing scheme. Mm. Would you be able to tell us a bit about what ORS is? Sure. ORS is a funding mechanism for what are very high um, complex needs, often very high physical complex needs, for some of our students. Um, at this stage, it's um, budgeted only on 1% of the school population, which, and, and anybody who's been in this area will tell you that's not a large enough percentage of the school population. But incrementally, we have to move forward. So this is another incremental shift 
to recognise that children are actually in class 25 hours a week. At the moment, on average, and please remember it's an average, um, those children with high needs get uh, funded for 10 hours of teacher aid time. And this amount that I announced yesterday will lift that by three hours on average a week. And then students with very high needs are funded for 17 hours. And again, this will lift it by three hours to 20 hours a week. Um, and that's, that's that um, 128 million out of that 160 million, which is what we call baseline funding. So that will stay there continually into the future. And hopefully in the future, we'll continue to add to that to try and reach um, to try and reach that level of at least the classroom hours that those children are actually attending. And I know the IHC applauded this funding announcement, but they were also wondering if it was in the government's plans to review the OARS funding policy as they view the criteria to be quite difficult and for that reason excluding many children who may need additional support. It is. I mean, it is. There's no doubt about it. Like, so with regard to answering about whether this government, this government's got one more day of parliament and then we are into an election campaign. So unfortunately, this particular government will not be addressing that issue. Um, however, it is an issue that any future government must address. Um, they're absolutely right. The, the wall to jump over to get OARS support is incredibly high. Um, and actually, we don't know enough about all of the other students that don't quite get over it. So part of the work I've been doing in the last three years around the learning support delivery model, around learning support coordinators, has been to try and alleviate some of that um, need for those students who haven't been able to jump over that oars wall, um, but also recognising that we need to keep moving incrementally to put in supports um, and choices for those children to be able to participate in school. Right, and if we then just turn lastly to a bill that's been um, recently debated in the House, I wanted to talk about the Crimes Definition of Female Genital Mutilation Amendment Bill because I understand that you believe that what was a, a very important part in history kind of got overlooked in the media, so I'd like you to, to comment yeah. on, um, first of all, why this amendment was necessary and then and what was unique about it. Well, so the, the bill itself, it updates the Crimes Act 1961, um, and what it does is it updates the definition of female genital mutilation to ensure that all types of female genital mutilation are illegal in New Zealand um, and to protect all women and girls um, from this practice. Um, I, most New Zealand would think, gosh, you know, why, why would we need a piece of legislation like that? But as our, as our world changes and our population becomes more diverse, there are people who come from places that have, um, you know, that, are, that have lived in a different way and have a different um, way of perceiving certain things. And so this was needed to reinforce that in New Zealand, this is not a practice that we accept. Um, and the reason why it's historical is it's the first piece of legislation that has come into the Houses of Parliament with a name from each political party on it. So normally you have to have... Now, the women's, um, Commonwealth Women's Association here in Parliament, where all of the women are represented on this particular uh, group, we tried in the last Parliament to talk to the Speaker, David Carter, and ask him, could we put a name of a woman from each political party onto the piece of legislation that would have, that changed the rules around underage marriage. And he said no. Um, 
Trevor Mallard, the Speaker of the current Parliament, was approached with the same request for this piece of legislation, and he said, yes, let's work this out. So there is a name from the Green Party, from the Labour Party, from the National Party, and from New Zealand First, um, of a woman who has been the author and the supporter of this ledge. That is, that is his, history-making, but it went through really late at night. <laughs> Is this going to set a precedent for future bills like this being able to be passed? Well, definitely it's set a precedent. So what it means is that it can be done. Um, and the woman, the Commonwealth Women's Parliamentary Group often raises issues like this. And we do all the work and we agree amongst all the political parties. So you can take a piece of legislation in and you don't have to go through what is the standard Westminster adversarial system. One should, um, from a transparency perspective for the public, I think there is another piece that needs to make sure that it happens. And what would be, what is the, mo what is the most preferable is that um, it's agreed across the parties, so there's unanimous support, it's been worked out before, and it go to at least a select committee stage so that the New Zealand public can scrutinise the legislation, put whatever comments they want into it. But it's not necessary then to go through all other sections of the House you know, um, if you've got agreement, we could take up less parliamentary time, put legislation through that we all agree on, and we know that it's not going to get undone. And then we can save our parliamentary time for things that are contentious, where we actually need to have that Westminster adversarial system going back and forward across the House. Well, yeah, and I guess it too, also with a topic like this, it kind of saves you know, having to have debate which might be harmful or argument for argument's sake. And, and that is, I mean, there's, there's a part to the Westminster system which is that, argument for argument's sake. I mean, you know, the opposition's job is to oppose because through that opposition they may, they better inform the public, you know. It's only when you... It's only when you have an interaction backward and forward with opposite perspectives being articulated, even if at the end of the day everybody agrees, do you get the full spectrum of what is the conversation about a topic. Um, and these hard topics, we shouldn't, make, we shouldn't shut down these hard topics in the House, though. I know many of our male colleagues don't want to know about this. They'd like the women to go away and deal with it. Um, but, you know, they're 48% you know, of the New Zealand public. They need to take responsibility and also participate in the debate. So I'd hate to see topics like this being put through quickly in the future just so that it doesn't make certain members of Parliament uncomfortable. That was Tracy Martin from the New Zealand First Party. The Wire.